Is there a large number of cases that come out of the correctional centers in Randolph County? <laughs> there could be an awful lot. I will be selective with them. Yeah. Internal Affairs sends them to me, and I kind of screen them. Staff assaults, I pretty well charge no matter what, no matter what the guy's outdate is, because I feel that if a man or a woman that's a correctional officer gets hit or gets urine or feces thrown on them, that guy should be prosecuted no matter how much time they're doing. Uh, you know, shank cases uh, in that if they get caught with a uh, shank in their cell and they didn't use it against anybody and they're already doing life, I probably pass on that case. Uh, the more unique cases that we have now, there's a, just a tremendous amount of synthetic cannabis uh, K2 cases that are coming uh, out of Menard. Uh, where they're having people ship it in through the mail, uh, just soaking a magazine, soaking a, a birthday card. They soak it in this liquid, and then they're selling it on the inside for a tremendous amount of money. And, of course, people down there being the individuals in custody, not staff, individuals in custody are looking for any way that they can to get high to pass time. Mm. Uh, and uh, between hooch, in that you know where they make their own alcohol in their cells, and K2, it's a real security problem uh, for Menard right now. There's no question about it. So K2 is a synthetic marijuana, essentially, that is in a liquid form that can be soaked into a paper and then mailed into a facility and then essentially placed on a tongue or something no different than like LSD would have been. 100%. Okay. Well, that's something I had not heard of before. I had heard of K2, but I did not understand that particular process and how that might get into the prisons, because over the years, you know, I've always thought about drugs being, quote unquote, smuggled in to a prison by people who are going there for visitations of inmates or whatever. But that would seem like a very difficult thing to even scan the mail for. Yeah, it, it is. It's a it, it's a chore. Uh, they're having to go through every piece of mail and do the best that they can. And you know, to their credit, Menard itself, their administration knows it's a problem. They've tried to get Springfield to help them with it, where they go to an electronic scanning, where the inmates would no longer get their mail. They would scan it and dump it onto an electronic device that they could view. But it's my understanding that for whatever reason, Springfield has told them no. And unfortunately, what it's going to take is most likely a correctional officer getting exposed to it accidentally, there being an overdose where somebody's significant injury, uh, significant injury or death. Mm. And that, to me, it, it maybe will open up Springfield's eyes. It's just it's a real problem, and I really don't think people, the rank-and-file people have any idea. It, it is down there, and it's down there uh, in a big way. Randolph County State's Attorney Jeremy Walker visiting with us this afternoon. We'll take the first break of the day, and we'll be back with more right after this. Finding in the studio with me today is the Randolph County State's Attorney, Mr. Jeremy Walker. Um, you are running unopposed for a judge's seat in this coming November, correct? I am. Uh, judge Brown is retiring after many years of service to Randolph County, both as a public defender and then he's been circuit judge, I think, or judge for 18 years between associate and circuit judge. And uh, he announced his uh, retirement and uh, I filed my paperwork to file or filed my paperwork to run for his spot and uh, am unopposed, uh, which is uh, a blessing. And just so that I fully understand and the listeners do, uh, once you are elected to that seat because not all judges are the same you'll be handling a criminal docket well again it's unique to a, a county just like a, you know state's attorneys are unique as far as their duties it depends upon the county and uh, what situation they have but 
uh, in Randolph County, uh, the circuit judge handles pretty much all of the fel- felony cases, some of the misdemeanors, uh, and then you know the major civil cases, and then the associate judges usually pick up uh, the family type cases, be it your divorces, your kids, uh, whenever they weren't married and they have kids in common, mm-hmm. uh, domestic violence, courtroom OPs, things along those lines. So, uh, but you got to do it all, just like if, if whenever you're in private practice in a small county, you got to do it all. It'd be the same way for a judge. I ask you if there was a specific moment when you decided to run for uh, state's attorney and you told me about that. I presume that much of this running for judge is just simply a matter of timing. One hundred percent. You know, number one, they don't become available very often, especially in a small county. So whenever they do become available, uh, you know, you need to give it some thought and think about it if it's what you want to do or not. And I'll be the first to admit I had some consternation, not that I, you know, don't want to be judge. I think almost every attorney's got some aspiration in them that if a situation arises that they could do it. But I really, truly do love the job. Uh, love being state's attorney. I've loved my time, but by the same token, it does take a toll on you. You know, back at the beginning of the interview, we talked about the time constraints and I mean, literally I I haven't had what I would call a true day off in almost 10 years, you know, God bless our police officers. But you know, if I'm on vacation, they don't know it. And if I'm lucky enough to be playing golf on the beach in Florida and the phone rings, I take the call. Right. You know, you just, it, 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 that's just part of the job. And, uh, that constant grind can take your uh, time. Off. It, it wears on you. And, I, you know, I'm certainly I think I got many years left in me. But by the same token, if somebody becomes judge that's younger than me, I don't know if I want to be doing this job 25 more years. And I don't know if the citizens of Randolph County need me to be doing the job 25 more years from now. You know, I think I've done a good job, uh, but, you know, somebody else may do a better job. And I think it's time to pass the torch to somebody else. One thing that I can't let go by is to ask you about the Drew Peterson trial. This, of course, was something that became very high profile um, not too long after you were first elected uh, state's attorney. I'm trying to recall, was that case uh, 2016? We tried it in May of 2016, uh, right about almost this time, about six years ago. Uh, It was in 2016. We tried the case. We filed it in early 2015. But again, the uniqueness of having the Menard Correctional Center in our county, that's the reason why I got to know one Drew Peterson. And uh, I did. It was uh, an interesting case, interesting development. And, you know, one day, a Friday afternoon, I was sitting in my office and I got a phone call from the attorney general uh, herself at the time out of, out of Chicago. Like, I need some people to meet with you on Monday. And I'm like, oh, boy, what is this about? Uh, didn't even give any thought about it being Drew Peterson. And uh, they show up uh, with uh, three attorneys and two FBI agents and start running through me what had been transpiring down at Menard. And off to the races we went. Yeah, if there's any one thing that stands out in your memory about all of that trial, what would it be? I would say the as far as getting to interact with Drew, he he, he stands out uh, and uh, you know, he he's cool as a cucumber. Uh, been accused and convicted of some pretty nasty stuff and uh, you can see why perhaps uh, individuals, uh, you know, trusted him and liked him because he's an affable guy. But at the same time, he's a convicted murderer and uh, certainly tried to kill a state's, fellow state's attorney as well, too. And ultimately, he was convicted of what? 
uh, conspiracy uh, to commit first-degree murder that he was trying to hire uh, somebody to kill James Glasgow, who was the state's attorney of Will County, uh, who was responsible for his uh, conviction uh, for uh, first-degree murder for the murder of his second wife, Kathleen Salvo, I believe. And his first wife had also died under mysterious circumstances, but he was never convicted of her death. Correct. Okay. And uh, he was a one-time Illinois State Police officer. Yeah, and worked for Bolingbrook uh, Police Department. He was a police officer and, like I said, a very affable guy. And uh, you can understand why people would like him out on the streets, but obviously had some serious issues and acted out in some very inappropriate ways. Yeah, no question. Well, that certainly had to have been the most high-profile thing that you've been involved in, wasn't it? Oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, during that process of fielding questions from the Chicago media, you know, the Chicago Tribune would call, the Chicago Tribune came down and covered the trial, all the Chicago news stations were down there, uh, WGN was down interviewing. And then on the back end, it's had a tremendous amount of interest. Uh, I've sat for an interview with the Discovery Channel uh, going over it. Um, Dateline last summer ran something. I didn't have time to sit with an interview with them, but I had to turn over all the recordings to them. I would say I had to. I did. Mm -hmm. Turned over all the recordings to them. You know, there's certainly a lot of interest about him. And uh, we may be seeing him back in Randolph County soon. He's filed his proverbial uh, post-conviction. Uh, which, uh, if anybody's ever seen the Shawshank Redemption, you know, they always say something very colorful about what their lawyer did to them. Right. Uh, and uh, that's what the post-conviction is, is that my lawyer screwed me over, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what they're uh, filing. Which isn't true, but <laughs> we still got to deal with it. Yes, well, people have a right to engage the process. That's correct. Um, I want to ask you about conflicts of interest. Any time... You are in a position as an elected official. You have friends, you have family members, your assistant state's attorneys uh, are going to have connections that are going to naturally create conflicts of interest. I would have to think that much of your job or some percentage of your job is just simply managing those conflicts such that the public and the people on trial can, as much as possible, feel like impartiality is... Uh, injected in, in into the the justice process. Yeah, for sure. And there's a safety valve for that. And I've been blessed in that nobody in my close circle has been in trouble since I've been state's attorney. Um, but whenever there is a situation where, you know, because of somebody you've represented in the past um, or, you know, just that there is an appearance and perhaps and you meet with the victim and be like, hey, you know, I just want to let you know that this person I have some affiliation with. And if they're cool with it, I'm cool with it. And if they would say, no, Jeremy, I just don't think so. I don't think you can give us a fair shot. Uh, I've got two resources available to us. Uh, the Illinois State's Attorney Appellate Prosecutor. Uh, they come in and uh, can do conflict cases for us. And then also the Illinois Attorney General's Office, you can ask to come in uh, and they can do a conflict for you. And ultimately, I only had one time where I've had to do it, and that's where somebody I defended a long time ago filed one of those post-convictions. And Mm. obviously I couldn't be the prosecutor and the defense attorney at the same time. Uh, So we brought in, I think, ILSAP in that situation, the state's attorney's appellate prosecutor. And you've been, when did you graduate law school? 2003. 2003 and uh, over that time our world has changed so much with the social media and and all these kinds of things become part and parcel to evidence that's just one example Uh, is there anything in the way things used to be done uh, in the judicial process that is uh, 
particularly better or you think maybe particularly worse than it was when you first began? How have things changed primarily? Well, I mean, as far as the nuts and bolts in the courtroom, that part of it hasn't changed. Um, you know, there are things that are changing. You know, the the drug, the, the methamphetamine onslaught is way different, and that has created a volume like we've never seen before. Uh, so that is unique, and that is different. Um, you know, the, the thing that's getting ready to change uh, that is going to be a game changer for the judicial system uh, is this bail reform. Uh, yeah. That's part of the Safety Act that's going into effect on January 1. Um, and what that means is if people haven't read up on it, and I don't think a lot of people have read up on it, is that Illinois is completely eliminating the cash bail system. Uh, and what that means for those that don't know is that if you get arrested for a misdemeanor, you know, it's a Friday night, you get mad at your buddy and you punch him in the face at the bar and they take you down to the county on a misdemeanor battery, you by law can post $150 and you get out of jail. Under the Safety Act, you don't post bond. The police officer and the state's attorney will have to make a decision. Do we take him to jail? And then he has to sit over, week, over the whole weekend and then see the judge to get released on what's called pretrial release. Uh, felonies are going to be the same way. We're not going to be able to detain people on most felonies that are filed in Illinois. Uh, methamphetamine you can't. Deliver of methamphetamine you can't. The only time you can detain somebody uh, is a non-probationable violent felony. You know, your sex assaults, uh, predatory criminal sexual assault of a child, uh, residential burglary would be a, a home invasion. You know, those are very serious things and make common sense to detain people under those scenarios. But breaking into cars, you can't be detained on that anymore uh, come, come January 1. So that is going to be a game changer. Uh, and uh, that'll be a, a, a very difficult uh, map to navigate through uh, in the coming year. And it was really unnecessary because we kind of had that game changer. I mean, back to the original question. There was already that, a lot of bail reform in Illinois. Correct. And, and they had already fixed the problem in my mind. You know, if there was a problem, you know, I understand people are presumed innocent that are arrested on a charge. I'm, I'm not trying to say any other way. But if you've been arrested for methamphetamine two or three times, which we see quite a bit, you know, perhaps a big high bond of $50,000 that they can't come up with is a good thing because we keep them in jail for rehab, not to punish people, but to help them. But they did re they did reform the bail a few years ago where if you were charged with a class three or four felony, you it was presumed that you get released on your own recognizance. That fixed the problem of nonviolent offenders being in jail. Right. And uh, But yet, you know, just like most things, they had to go back to the drawing board and change it some more. Well, it's... As, as a mayor of a community in Southern Illinois, here is what I know will happen. There will be somebody who will commit a crime against a literal neighbor. You will have two people living next door to one another, and someone will go over and steal someone's chainsaw or lawnmower or whatever. That person will be picked up, taken, processed, and be back home next door to the person that they've committed this crime against within maybe an hour. The person who is the victim of that crime is going to feel completely helpless. And they are going to say to themselves, uh, "What? my quality of life has been severely injured here. I do not feel secure on my own property. And 
there will be violence occur between people because there is not going to be cooling off periods exist due to the elimination of of of, of bail and that's going to do <laughs> anything but make communities more safe i i don't disagree with you it, it is going to create very bad results and in some situations it's going to create a different result than what people want uh, you know, what are we going to do with somebody that's arrested for DUI over the weekend? Uh, you know, you can't release that person uh, if they're still drunk, you know, but under the law now, they post $100 in a driver's license and they're out the front door, where in my mind, I think now we're going to have to keep people in jail all weekend if they get arrested for DUI, because I don't want to say, okay, that person can go, and then they get, and then they hit somebody right. on the way home. You know, and now the person that gets a DUI on Friday night that would have been out on jail, would, would have been out on bond on Friday night is going to be sitting there Monday morning waiting to see a judge. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing, but what it is is it's the exact opposite result of what people wanted, which was people not in jail. Right. And to your point, you are going to have problems. And there's a procedure that even in these cases where we can detain people, the defense attorneys can ask that the victim have to come testify at the detention hearing, which has to be 48 hours of the arrest of the defendant. So if a woman is sexually assaulted on Friday night, by Wednesday morning, she could be sitting in our courtroom and I'm having to get her ready to testify about what she just lived through. Mm. And that is just not a good idea. Yeah, it is just sad. It's uh, it's it's not good, good law. And I think that... Uh, if if I can be optimistic, which rarely am I, um, hopefully there will be continued trailer bills to uh, amend that. But unfortunately, I think the consequences are going to have to play out in our communities before that can happen. I, I agree. And to that point, they've been telling us since this past almost a year ago, it was right at the end of the session last May right. at the middle of the night, whenever it all started going down. And they've told us, they've told our lobbying organization, again, the, the Illinois State's Attorneys Association, they've told the Illinois State's Attorney's Appellate Prosecutor, don't worry, we're going to fix it. Don't worry, we're going to fix it. Well, we were told that last October. Didn't happen. Right. We were told that last December. Didn't happen. We were told that this session that it was going to happen. Didn't happen. Now, they don't come back for veto until after the election, to my understanding. So if they fix it, they're fixing something about six weeks before it goes into play, and I, I have no faith that's going to get fixed. Jeremy Walker, Randolph County State's Attorney, in the studio with me today. We'll take another break, and we'll be back with more right after this. Got a few more minutes left to visit with uh, Jerry, uh, Jeremy Walker, the Randolph County State's Attorney, who's been very uh, gracious with his time today to come over and be in the studio with me. Um, a note, tomorrow in the studio with me will be Dale Valley. He is a candidate for Randolph County Sheriff. That's tomorrow here on uh, WXAN 103.9 FM live at 12 noon or 12.05 to be um, completely right about it. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to talk about or that you think is important uh, for people to understand about the uh, function of the state's attorney's office that I haven't asked you about today. I always love it whenever I get asked that question about what else could we ask. Yeah, but, sure. You know, I just I just want people to understand, at least as it relates to me, the, the time and effort that goes in to each and every case. You know, certainly 
some cases by its very definition you're going to spend more time on you know just because the case is bigger the case has got a lot more witnesses you know usually your more severe crimes your violent crimes your murders whenever you've got somebody that's dead whenever you've got a rape a sexual assault but every case even just the routine case where an 18 year old gets pulled over with methamphetamine there's time and effort that goes into it you know mm-hmm. we look at every case making sure you know, did the police officer have a valid reason to pull them over? Did the police officer read them their rights whenever they needed to? Was the search good? Did they have a right to search the glove box whenever they searched the glove box? Okay, all of that looks good. So now what charge are we going to file? All right, well, let's charge this. And then you got to get all that discovery out to the defense attorney. Then you start thinking, all right, well, what's the fair disposition? You know, in some cases, it's readily apparent what a fair disposition is. You know, it's a first timer. You give them first timers. Your more difficult cases are your victim cases where you've got a young girl that's been a victim of something horrendous. You know, you got to spend time getting them ready for trial. You got to spend time meeting with the parents, you know, establishing a rapport that they trust you. Um, And then you got to come up with what is a fair disposition. And, you know, fair disposition probably would be that person spending the rest of their life in prison. But, you know, as a prosecutor, that if that's the outcome you're looking for, that little seven year old that's sitting across from you crying right now at your desk talking about what happened to her by her uncle Johnny, you're going to put her on a witness stand. And you got to start taking that into consideration. Do you really want to make her do that? Do you really want to re-traumatize her? And if there's a way to minimize that uh, effect on her, continued effect on her, what is the what is a fair outcome? So, I you know every single case, all the way from murder down to even a speeding ticket, I think about what is fair. Uh, and there's a lot of time and an effort to, that goes into it. And I realize not everybody's going to disagree with me, you know, and or not everybody's going to agree with me. And I respect that. Uh, but I I just want people to know that every single time there's a reason why we do what we do. I just don't sit at my desk and throw darts and say, well, that one's getting five years. That one's getting three years. Right. There is a lot of thought and effort that goes into every single case in Randolph County. Most people have had mentors in their life. Uh, Was there somebody specific to your legal career that was very influential uh, in your education or in your practice as state's attorney? Well, there was two guys. Um, I was sitting in my house on uh, Schwartz Street in Carbondale my first year of law school and got an email that they were from the law school that they were looking for a summer intern at a law firm in Chester, uh, Ed Fisher and Jeff Kirkover. Uh, Ed's now retired and uh, lives down in Hot Springs, Arkansas most of the time, still comes back. Jeff is still practicing. Uh, those guys hired me uh, in April of 2001, 21 years ago, to work for them uh, in law school. And uh, I, I truly can credit everything that I've got to them in that they kept me here locally. I didn't look for anywhere else. They hired me right out of law school to keep working for them as an attorney. Um, the opportunity developed in 2005 for me to become the public defender, so I had to leave them. Uh, but everything that flowed from that was because of them. So yeah, there are two guys, Ed Fisher and Jeff Kirkover, and I owe them almost everything as it relates to my legal career. Jeremy Walker has been our guest today in the studio, Randolph County State's attorney. Uh, Thank you again for coming over. We really appreciate your time. You bet. Thank you. Anytime.